0: The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors, and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever changing government? I'm Justin Russell and I work alongside the Justice System as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA, with your host, Justin Russell.
0: In September 2017, Peter Clark, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, paid an unannounced visit to Her Majesty's Prison, Liverpool. He was horrified by what he found. Hundreds of broken windows, filthy and blocked toilets, cockroaches, cells unfit for human habitation... Huge piles of rubbish, so rat-infested and hazardous to health that it was deemed unsafe for them to be cleared by prison staff. It was one of the most damning reports ever written by the inspectorate and represented an abject failure of leadership by the prison service. Two years later, in September 2019, the chief inspector paid another visit to Liverpool. He found a prison transformed. The squalor and filth we saw in 2017, he said, had gone replaced by clean and decent living conditions for the vast majority of prisoners. It was, he said, a remarkable achievement driven by enormously energetic and respected leadership. My guest today is the woman who provided that leadership and drove that remarkable transformation. The first Asian woman to govern a prison in England and Wales and a charismatic leader who spent much of her career doing one of the toughest leadership jobs in the public sector. Her name is Pia Sinha. Welcome, Pierre.
1: Thanks, Justin.
0: So, Pierre, in this series, we're talking about all the things that great leaders need to do, setting a vision for their organisation, engaging their staff in that vision, and making sure that real changes are delivered. And you've had to do all of those things in your career.
1: I have, indeed.
0: Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in London, I think, and studied for a psychology degree before qualifying after several years training as a chartered psychologist in 2000. That's right. And it was as a psychologist that you started work in Holloway Prison, a famous women's prison in North London, which closed in 2016, but was very much still going when you started there. So I guess an obvious question, what, what made you want to work in the prison service? It's not everyone's most obvious career choice.
1: I'd like to pretend that it was a a passion and a call for duty. But to be honest, Justin, after eight years of completing my studies as a chartered psychologist, it was just wanting to have a job, to be honest. But I think my experience and my reflection from people who work in prisons, you very quickly realize whether it's the place for you or not. And I think I fell into the former within weeks of being there, I kind of loved it and I felt that I could really do some good work here. So um, it was a baptism by fire, but it wasn't a premeditated passion or desire to work in prisons that took me there. It was probably like most students, hungry students after eight Mm -hmm. years of study and needing to find a full time job. And that's how I found myself. So more by luck than any judgment, I, I guess, is the honest answer.
0: And you know you and I have been into many prisons in our time but for those listeners who haven't ever been into a big Victorian local prison what does it feel like for the first time to walk into a an institution like that
1: I think that you know even before you step into the main prison You know, the things that you have to do, there's a ritual as you enter prisons. And with the completion of each ritual, you feel more and more kind of this trepidation as you progress through the various gates before you actually come into the prison. So by the time you're actually making your way into the kind of center of the prison, your heart is already beating quite fast because you've been conditioned into this kind of world, which is completely alien. So whether it is your first experience of going through an airlock, most people won't know what an airlock is, but you walk into it and one door shuts. And for a very brief moment, you're completely locked inside this cube And it is quite a panicky first experience, I think. But as you're starting your first job, that entry into this world is quite alarming, to be honest. But having said that, after a while, it just becomes second nature. And I remember when I first started in Holloway, one of the things that you become acutely aware of is your keys, which are attached to your belt and to your person, which you're supposed to guard with your life. And I remember going through rooms within my own home, looking for my keys to lock myself, you know, behind me and as I entered. So very quickly, you become immersed in the, the ritual of being in a, in a prison. And that ritual, some people kind of get their heads round and some people really don't like. And so to answer your question, when you kind of come into prison, you are almost kind of signing a contract to suspend the the disbelief of being in that environment. And either you kind of cope with it or you don't cope with it. And, And I luckily found myself kind of intrigued and fascinated by the setup, but also the work that I was doing and the the women that I was working with immediately made me feel that I could really put my skills to good use. And I was, I was hooked, basically, within a few weeks of being there.
0: So say a bit more about what you do as a psychologist in a prison. You're you're working on a a one-to-one basis with prisoners, are you?
1: Yes, that's right. So I started in Holloway as a counselling psychologist and the main remit of my my service was to provide crisis counselling to women who were distressed and traumatised. I think at that time in the late 90s, there was an awakening to the fact that People who end up in prison are not just there to rehabilitate. Of course, that's the primary purpose, but also recognizing that with women in particular, that being incarcerated was a highly traumatic experience. It represented a period of crisis for them, and that there were high levels of self harm and suicide within women prisons, certainly, which needed addressing. And my service was set up in Holloway Prison to not necessarily look at offending behavior, but look at how you worked with women in trauma to get them to a place where they might be ready to address some of their offending behavior, because you can't kind of work with people who are so highly traumatized that they won't engage in that process. So my service was set up with those women in particular Holloway was a remand prison. So you were getting women coming into custody, some for the very first time. And that's when they are at their worst moments. And And that's the service that we provided. We went up to see them proactively and try to engage them in crisis intervention counselling and help them through their first few days and weeks in custody.
0: And then after Holloway, you moved on to another... Famous Victorian local prison Wandsworth in South London, which is a, a male prison. Yes, carried on being a psychologist. Was was that a very different sort of client group that you're working with? Different set of issues.
1: Yes, it, it it was and it wasn't. I think after five years of working with women in women's prisons, I thought it was important for me as a professional to actually work with men as well. I kind of was, you know, left working in women's prisons sort of uh, almost vicariously traumatized by the experience of it and, you know, holding that belief in a way that all men were perpetrators and all women were victims. And I, I kind of reflected that that probably wasn't a very healthy dynamic to kind of hold as a psychologist. And so I wanted to work with men just to balance that experience out as a professional. And I found, Justin, that they're just as much places of despair and when you work with men in the same kind of crisis intervention mode, you find that they too are highly, highly traumatized individuals. They come from exactly the same backgrounds as the women do, you know, so they've ended up in prison due to a series of events and life experiences and early life experiences in particular. It manifests itself slightly differently in the crimes that men and women commit. But ultimately, you can, you know, draw it all the way back down to early childhood experiences. And both, you know, boys and girls, children suffer the same. And I felt that although men express their distress in very different ways to women, that distress is still the same, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And then after six or seven years, I think it was, as a psychologist, you you moved into a management role, moved into a leadership role. Was that a conscious thing? Did you find yourself becoming interested in in becoming a leader?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that when I was in Wandsworth, I had the good fortune of working with a governor who was, you know, very forward thinking. I was a non-operational psychologist working in a very operational world. And in many traditional prisons, the sort of operational versus non-operational line is very distinct. But the governor I worked with was more interested in in talent and and what people bring and what they offer, and and he saw my work, you know, in trying to make Wandsworth a safer place. And he said that you know you need to help us as within our senior management team to look at what strategies we need to employ to make the whole jail safer. So you're not just working with individuals and groups, but you're working with the system. And because of the opportunities he gave me, so as a non-operational psychologist in Wandsworth, I found myself being in charge of all the high-risk areas in the prison and operationally leading those areas. So, you know, reception, first night in custody, the substance misuse unit, the care and separation unit. And that really gave me the bug to, to think that actually the skills that I've learned and acquired and the experience I've acquired working with individuals, I can actually equally apply those skills to work with the system and i did get the bug for you know developing my leadership career further than just being a psychologist and i was fortunate enough in 2009 for a fast-track scheme that was in operation called the Senior Prison Manager Program. And it allowed the opportunity for non-operational managers to to become operational. And I went through operational training. I became a prison officer. I worked as a prison officer and received my operational training and then became a operational governor.
0: So do you, do you want to say a bit more about the skills that you think you bring to leadership from that background in psychology? What, what do you think they are?
1: I think that on reflection, the skills that are transferable as a psychologist, which I still use now, is probably the ability to kind of take a little bit of a step back and be able to formulate quite clearly and accurately what might be wrong, what is actually going on. You know, being a psychologist really helps you hone in on your analytical skills and I think that really helps. So whichever new position I go into, one of the first things I try and do is to get a real sense and feel of what is misfiring here, what's not working, what's feeling maladaptive. And, and also, I think that the, the, the skills as a psychologist are about how do you really relate to people? You know, how do you actually understand not people just as individuals, but the collective? Where is their beating heart? What what is kind of empowering them? What motivates them? What disempowers them? What disengages them? And you get a picture, I think, of the whole organization. And once you have that clear picture, you can then start working quite systematically in saying, well, what does it need and how do we fix it? But also not only what does it need and how do we fix it, but how do I bring the group of individuals that will enable all of that change to happen to to feel that they're working with common purpose to kind of fix this together? You know, how do we fix this problem that's ours together? And I think that's, you know, that co-creation in kind of problem solving feels really, really important.
0: You mentioned the governor at Wandsworth being a key influence on you. Were there other leaders that you've learnt from or leadership books or theories that you've been able to particularly relate to?
1: It's a good question. I think that I probably have been a bit of a magpie in my career. So I've kind of noticed how good people have done leadership and also noticed how not so good people have done leadership and and, you know, been inspired and motivated by various people throughout my career. But I think that, you know, importantly, I went to this really interesting leadership event that was held by the Tavistock Institute. It's the psychoanalysis of leadership. And I learned a lot through that process. I I think that I'm probably more of an experiential leader, and I kind of learn from my mistakes rather than through books, uh, more so, Justin. So yeah. I, I would probably say that I've kind of picked things up along the way and and tried and tested them out. And that's how I've kind of developed into where I am now.
0: And so after going through the leadership programme, you went on to govern or be deputy governor in a whole range of very different prisons. You've been a governor in women's prisons, in prisons for young offenders, in open prisons, do they, different sorts of prisons need different leadership styles? What did you learn from that experience of moving between different organizations?
1: I did. I, and I think that, you know, people always, you know, one of the first questions you get asked as a governor is, you know, what are you going to do in your first hundred days? And it's almost as if, you know, you walk into a place with a complete idea and uh, absolute clarity on what your kind of uh, one, two, three priorities are going to be. And I haven't done that. I prefer to go to different places and, and and just kind of be still a little bit and notice and observe and talk. And it goes back to the point that I made earlier about getting a formulation or a sense of what this particular prison needs. And, you know, my experience of doing my first prison, which is my first governorship, which was Thorn Cross, it was an open prison. And prior to going into working in Thorn Cross, the majority of my experience had been in large Victorian category B local prisons. And it's a completely different type of prison to that, And I guess my observation was, is that although the pace was slower, you were managing risk in probably a much harder environment, because in open prisons, you were holding and being responsible for people who were coming towards the end of sometimes very long sentences, life sentences, IPP sentences, and you were having to manage them without boundaries and without the high walls and the razor wire. So the kind of skills that you need as a prison officer working in those environments, but equally as someone governing those prisons have to be completely different. The risk is managed in a very different way. The risk is managed through relationships rather than through physical barriers. And all of those things take a lot of getting your head around. And so if I had gone into working in different prisons with a very preset idea of what leadership required, so, you know, leadership by numbers, if you if you like, I think I would have got that wrong. So the kind of key and the trick to it for me was to not rush in and to try and kind of, you know, set about instigating a formulaic approach to what I needed to do, but to kind of hold back and to give myself time to understand what this prison needed and to be able to adapt my leadership style to give it what it needed. And I think adaptability is, is one of the key features, I think, of my leadership approach.
0: And you certainly needed adaptability when in September of 2017, you were asked to move to Liverpool prison after that terrible inspection report. When that call came, how did you feel? Did you take much persuading to go back to (laughs) Liverpool, which I think was a prison you'd been a deputy of in 2012?
1: So yes the the honest answer to that Justin is that I wasn't kind of as you know once the report had come out and we you know I was working in the region when Liverpool uh, received its poor inspection and it it sent shockwaves across the region especially to all of us who were governing there and you know my first thought was oh my god uh, god help the poor person who takes over that jail and and so when I got the call to say we'd like you to take on the governorship of that jail, my first response, as you can imagine, and I won't I won't swear Justin, but it was politely saying no thanks. However, I I did get the hard sell, and when I really kind of took time to reflect, because I said I needed time to think about it, and I did I did think about it. And I reflected on my time there as deputy governor. And I look back on the two years that I was at the Depp there very, very fondly. I loved working in Liverpool. And there was something about Liverpool, the people, the staff, and actually the men who we were looking after. There was something quite unique and special about that that prison. And I realised that if someone was to have a hope in hell in turning that prison around, it needed to be someone that the staff knew and trusted and felt that they could get behind. I think that, you know, it's probably hard to explain, but when you work in a prison, it becomes part of you, it becomes an extension of your family. And when you do get such a public kind of fall from grace and and, and Liverpool had... It really, really emotionally affects people, you know, and I knew that they would be hurting, and I knew that they'd be hurting really badly. And if there was someone that came in who was a new face that they didn't know, that they didn't trust, that didn't actually understand what the emotional impact would have been for them, they would have had a really tough job turning that jail around. And in the end, I was persuaded by that. And that's when I decided that I would do it. But I also said that I needed to be able to do it in my terms. I also knew in quite an opportunistic way that... I had the eyes, ears of the senior leadership. So if I said that I needed this and I wanted this and I, you know, I, I knew that the barriers that we normally would not have to go through to get what you want as a governor to make the changes that you need to make in your jail, I knew that those barriers would not be so high. And it was an opportunity to kind of take advantage of that, to be honest, to get what I needed to get to make the jail better.
0: Yeah, but having said all that, you were still inheriting a prison which, from all accounts, was in a very bad way. How do you even start with a leadership job like that? Where where do you focus your early priorities?
1: Again, I think that, you know, my first day in Liverpool, what I did was walk around the prison. I wanted to see it for what what it was and to, in some ways, to hold that picture in my mind and walking around B wing which was one of the wings that was very very severely criticized I, I, it it was it's hard to describe what that felt like because 4 years ago when i worked there it was in in an okay state and to see how badly it had deteriorated really affected me and i it almost kind of moved me to tears but it gave me an idea of, of the scale of the task. I, I completely kind of remember feeling quite overwhelmed and thinking, how on earth am I going to do this? But then I I think what gave me some hope was actually speaking to the staff. And they looked like they were rabbits in headlights. They looked beaten. They looked defeated but there was a part of them that really had a bit of fight in them and they wanted to prove the world wrong. They wanted to come out of this fighting. There was a bit of spirit left in there and they wanted the opportunity to make this right. And I thought that, well, if I've got that and I've got that behind me, I can kind of do a lot because you can sometimes go into a prison and the staff group don't care and they don't really want to make anything better because they've given up on it but there was still a very strong beating heart in Liverpool and I knew that you know with that there's a lot we could do there were people who were really willing to roll their sleeves up and make this happen and so I you know when I had my first so what happens when you become a governor new governor you always hold a full staff briefing with your staff within the first sort of 24 48 hours of, of kind of arriving there and it was a kind of, this is a line in the sand kind of moment. And I said, whatever the past has been, we do need to draw a line under it. We need to acknowledge our responsibility in kind of getting us where we have, but we now need to roll our sleeves up and, and work out how we do this, but we all need to do this together. And There was not a single person in that room that said, well, I'm not up for that. And the people that weren't up for it because they were tired and they were fatigued and and didn't kind of couldn't see the wood for the trees needed to kind of leave. And I was able to make those decisions. So what I was left with was a team of people, especially senior leadership team, those who were new and those who were already there, who were up for it. And I knew that if I had that team behind me and I had the staff group behind me, there wasn't a lot that we couldn't do.
0: Did you have to change a lot of the senior team? Or I did. I did. Yeah.
1: I, have to, I had to change. And that was where, you know, it really helped to have the backing of my sort of senior leaders who were up for it, you know. And it was it wasn't if they weren't sort of horrible conversations. They were just honest conversations. And I sat and had one-to-ones with my senior leadership team. And I said, you know, this is our task ahead. This is going to be bloody hard work. Are you up for it? Do you have the energy for it? Because if you don't, no one's going to hold that against you. But what we will need to do is to move you somewhere where you can kind of carry on you know repairing and rebuilding your career in a different direction because what Liverpool needs is you know everything that you've got and are you up for it and so there were a number of people who weren't and were moved and and I got some new good people in and the team together what I had in my senior leadership team was it was a team that were absolutely raring to go and that's what made the difference to be honest.
0: How about the prisoners? Because you needed to get them to buy into the project as well, I guess, and, and believe that things would be better. What? How, how did you engage with them?
1: I think that some of it was about getting them to feel ownership of their own prison. You know, so prison is a community; it's one community comprising of the people that you look after and the people that do the looking after, and. I guess what I created was a sense of this is ours and it's, you know, the bottom line was that prisoners were bored. They were bored. They were fed up. They, you know, obviously were living in terrible, in a a terrible environment, but a lot of the time they were behind their doors. And, you know, the best way to really engage people is to get them involved. And we got them involved in fixing and cleaning and, Making the jail theirs, and you know, and I think that there was, you know, there was. We had an estates group that was struggling with not having enough staff. You had a prison that was falling to bits, but you had about a thousand men potentially who wanted to come out and be out of their cells and be engaged in some meaningful, purposeful activity, and it felt like a no-brainer to kind of put all our resources together and and use their skills to help the estates team that was feeling completely overwhelmed by the job in hand and all of us sort of worked together. So, in you know, we initiated cleaning parties and work parties and painting parties and you'd walk around the jail and prison and I know Justin you visited, but everyone was mucking in together and everyone was working together in terms of this was Project Liverpool and everyone had bought into Project Liverpool So very soon, you know, the prisoners were kind of, it became a a bit of a virtuous cycle. So one of the things that we did was because all the windows were broken and it was going to take time. So we received a lot of money to refurbish windows and to kind of put them in. But that took time. But in the meantime, we got a working party set up with our prisoners who were, fixing perspex onto our windows and the perspex initially no sooner would they put them up they would get torn down because it didn't offer any ventilation so we had ideas from the prisoners to say well how do you increase ventilation and they they designed a perspex window which actually had a little fan within it a very crude mechanism but it worked and they went round we we kind of fashioned these perspex in our workshops They then got fixed by the the men. And because our prisoners were doing it, it created a little bit of peer pressure. So anyone who was breaking down the windows was then kind of, you know, getting a bit of a hard time from their own peers saying, hang on a minute, we're fixing these windows. Why are you breaking them down again? You know, that kind of thing. So it kind of felt that before you knew it, there was a bit of a movement that it created where people kind of felt a little bit proud of their jail. And it was creating that kind of sense of pride in everyone who worked within Liverpool, whether you were a prisoner or a partner or a member of staff or whoever who was coming in.
0: I mean, it seems a bit of a no-brainer, really, that you should involve prisoners in refurbishing their own prison. And you're quite right to say that we have thousands of prisoners stuck in their cells who often have very relevant... Skills. Why, why do you think it takes a crisis like this to make use of those skills to get people out of their cells doing things like this?
1: Well, I mean, I think the the thing about crisis is is that it it does have that sort of galvanizing effect. But you've got to be alive to the fact that these are opportunities, and I think that this is this is what I came into Liverpool doing is that seeing everything as an opportunity and a possibility. You know, maybe some people don't. I think that there is a, you know, I'll give you an example, Justin. You know, for ages, for ages and ages, even when I was deputy there, the narrative around Liverpool, because it was an old Victorian building, was, oh, the electrics are really old and ancient, and so we can't really give everyone a kettle in their room because that's just going to blow all the electrics. And I said, well, have we actually tried this? You know, we've got new style kettles that are very low voltage. Let's see whether that's going to actually have an impact, because let's face it, what's the worst that can happen? And we got kettles and lo and behold, nothing went wrong. So it was part of it was about trying to kind of test and challenge the status quo. So things in prisons, because they have been said often enough, they become a reality, And what you need to do and what actually happens in a crisis is that you kind of become your appetite for risk becomes greater because you've got not much to lose. So you take make decisions that you may not have other times or you would have kind of, you know, double guessed yourself or stopped yourself or, you know, inhibited those kind of responses. We just just said yes to a lot of things and said, let's just try it and see what happens. And I think that probably kind of helped in kind of getting things done quicker and faster.
0: And the things that you tried certainly did seem to make a difference. And the chief inspector's report in September 2019 seemed to confirm the impact of all that you've been doing. That must have been a very satisfying moment when Peter Clark came back and did his 2019 inspection and, and gave you that, that glowing report.
1: I think it was probably the best moment in my career, to be honest, Justin. And I think that, you know, we, we had an announced inspection and everyone up to that point had, I mean, literally blood, sweat and tears went into, you know, making the difference for our revisit. But on the Friday, which is when you get your inspection outcome, I think what happens is is that you, the governor and the chief inspector have a private conversation first where you're given the outcomes of your inspection and I remember sitting there and we were given the I mean I was getting I was sort of in a bit of a daze to be honest but respect which was one of the four healthy prison tests which was the one that Liverpool got slammed for most of all it got a one which is the lowest you can get when the inspector said to me, well, for respect, you've got a four and that's the highest you can get. And, and I can't explain to you what a surreal feeling it was, but I was moved to tears. and I And I, and I thought I couldn't quite believe it. But when we were, you know, talking to the senior team afterwards when the formal feedback was given, the team were kind of looking confused. And I and I said, can I just stop you there, Peter? And I said, team, do you know what that means? And they looked at me and they shook their heads. And I said, we got a four. And they were just all of them. I mean, they were like screams and shouts in the boardroom. And, and people were literally in tears because it had meant so much to them. And it's got to be the kind of highlight of my career, because the thing is that, you know, the, what we managed to do in those two and a bit years was to really get every single individual who was involved in that to really care about what happened to Liverpool. So there was so much riding on it. It wasn't just, oh, it's an inspection. Yeah, we'll do OK. We'll probably do better than we did last time. They wanted to do the best they could do because they were so invested in it. And, you know, there was a line in in the report, and Peter used this in his narrative, which was, we can tell that this is a prison where people genuinely care for each other and care for the prisoners. And in, in a way, that's all I really wanted. I wanted that narrative to change because What was the narrative in 2017 was that this was the worst jail in the country and that there was not an ounce of care in this jail about what happened. And to change that narrative so significantly in those two years has got to be the proudest moment of my career, I think.
0: So it must have been an amazing moment. And I think what comes across very clearly in Peter Clark's reports from his revisit was that the difference had been noticed by by the prisoners as well. They certainly felt more respected. They really noticed the improvement in in the conditions and had really welcomed that. So it wasn't just the staff that had noticed a difference, it was the prisoners themselves. And, and ultimately, yeah. they're, they're, they're the really important test, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the survey results. So the prisoner survey results, I think that we probably got one of the highest response rates from our prisoner surveys, that have been done in a local prison. I, th- I think I'm, I'm right in saying that. And they spoke for themselves. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, there were still things that we really need needed to address and improve and all the rest of it. But the engagement that the prisoners had in that process was, was huge. And we used prisoner reps to be our HMIP reps. So we had checks being done by them and they felt that they were part of the inspection you know so this was their inspection too and I thought that was a really really nice touch I think.
0: So in, in early 2020 you moved on and were moved into headquarters HMPPS headquarters just give us some sense of how the prison felt when you when you left it How how did it feel differently?
1: From when I arrived yeah I think you know the the most visible difference was you know it was gleaming it was gleaming it was green it had plants it had life it had there was a spring in people's step and you know I remember I used to always when people visited I used to we kept pictures of what Liverpool looked like when I first got there and then pictures so we'd almost did a sort of montage of you know before and after And one of the things I was really proud of was the gleaming floor in one of our centres. And, you know, people and I used to I used to kind of bring people along to the tour of Liverpool and show them some of the old cells because we kept them as they were under G-Wing. They were decommissioned, but it gave people an idea. So they were the cells that you saw in the press with the graffiti and the kind of darkness and the broken windows. And then the contrast to that, which was, you know, what it looked like now. And, it, and But this wasn't just the new wings that had been refurbished. It was the old wings that had not quite got round to the, you know, being refurbished yet. But they were spotless as well. So there was that visible difference between what it was then and what it is now. But more importantly, it was the way that people interacted with you. You know, there weren't, you know, people's heads weren't down. They were were bright they were animated they were proud they kind of you know they spoke with real passion about what they did and that was the jail that I left you know I left a jail I came to a jail where people's heads were down and I left a jail where people's heads were high you know and I and I guess it sounds a little bit trite to say that but it it literally was that.
0: So you've been in headquarters for nearly Two years. It must have felt strange for you being being away from the front line during the pandemic. I guess you probably missed being in a prison. What does the future hold? What comes next for you?
1: Well, I've, so I've been in headquarters now for eighteen months, and I've worked within the probation reform program, and now working for the probation workforce program. So it was it was a change from working in prisons to probation first of all, and then working in prisons in headquarters. So lots of major differences in, in what I've been used to doing. And I found it really tough, to be honest. I think that it really tested my resilience going from being in that prison environment where, you know, you just know what you're doing and you're you, you know, familiar with it. And there's a camaraderie and a real kind of, you know, sense of being around people and relating with people to then working in headquarters, which is quite anonymous and you know, you find yourself in a open plant office with a desk if you're lucky. And this was kind of when I first started where you didn't know anyone and, you know, literally were on your own. I found that really tough. And then from that very quickly to going into a a pandemic where I found myself working from home in my living room. So within the space of a few months, I had gone from being the governor of Liverpool what a, a completely immersive experience that was to finding myself completely on my own in my flat. And I, I kind of found that really tough, if I'm, if I'm really honest. I found that really, really tough.
0: And I think if we're allowed to talk about the future, you have a new role coming up, which in some ways is going right back to the, the start.
1: Yes, it's right back to the start. Uh, so as of November, I am going to take up post as the director of women in HMPPS. And I am absolutely delighted to be doing that role. I think that I've had my eye on that role for a long, long time. And I thought that, you know, one day that's what I would like to do. And that's so So my in my remit, I will have all the women's prisons. So that's 10 public sector prisons and two private prisons across the country. But uniquely, this role uh, is combining the work of prison and probation under one sort of senior SCS. And that's going to be really big, but also makes such sense to combine sort of prison probation. So, you know, you've got women in the criminal justice system under one kind of controlling mind, as it were. And I think that that would be, it's a real opportunity to kind of almost pilot how a one HMPPS approach can work. So lot riding on it, but it's an honor for me really, Justin, to be director of women because 22 years ago, that's where I started as a psychologist yeah. working in Holloway prison. So it feels a bit like I'm going back home.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like a fascinating role, Pierre, and best of luck with it. I'm sure you'll be great. And, and many thanks for talking to us today. It's been fascinating hearing about your career and your achievements. Thank you for, for sharing that experience with us.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the RSA.org approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.